Welcome to the Solve for Greatness podcast with your hosts, Dr. G and Budima. This podcast hopes to inspire everyone to realize their own greatness, maximize their potential, and create massive impact. Let's do this. Welcome to episode 35, where we reflect on Cohen Vanderveld's amazing Soul for Greatness episode. Budama, are you ready? Yeah, I was I was ready as soon as we stopped recording. I was so <laughs> I wanted to do the reflect this episode straight after that episode. <laughs> you wanted to do it with Cohen here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. <laughs> reflect in real time. It's like getting the commentary from a movie while you're watching the movie. Or just after you've watched the movie, you know, <laughs> the director's commentary. Yeah, now that was a special episode. It's I can see why you look up to him. He was so vulnerable. And then he also shared some really good models and particular quadrant models <laughs> that I'm looking forward to exploring. Yeah, it's something that you don't expect from leaders nowadays, like just that level of vulnerability. But I think it's starting to become part of the norm where we learn that the more that we share about each other, the more that people care. And when they start to care, you can create that environment where you build trust and you can build a team around that. I think there's a lot of things that we can learn from this episode and that conversation. But yeah, having spent almost a year and a half with with Cohen, it was pretty much just a crash course on what, what he's taught me throughout the throughout my time with him. Let's do another crash course right now, I guess. <laughs> Let's do a crash course of the crash course. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Where do you want to take this? Well, even from the beginning, when we asked him about his journey, I just wasn't expecting him to just be so upfront. I thought, I thought that would be a question that I would ask and it would just be a nice warm-up question until we can get to the meaty goodness of his greatness, right? But... He was just vulnerable from the start. I really enjoyed that. And especially hearing about his upbringing and hearing about the similarities of his upbringing to my upbringing as well. Having a bit of a difficult childhood and finding your meaning and your purpose. Because growing up, my family also had a lot of financial difficulty. And that has definitely shaped me in a way where I want to go towards financial security. I am at a point where I am financially secure, but there's always something in the back of my mind that is telling me, you know, one day it might happen. One day something could happen and you could lose your job or you could lose your livelihood or you could lose your ability to make income. So those past experiences, however rational or irrational they may be, they're your experiences and they helped shape you but that doesn't necessarily mean they have to shape you moving forward into the future. How would you know you're financially secure? Are you, is there a, a specific plan or thing that you're working towards or is it just, just like this nagging in the back of your mind? Because I, I asked a similar question from Cohen, like, is it, does it ever stop? Like, can you actually shake that? Because <laughs> it, <was, laughs> it was part of your and Some of these things can be sort of conditioned into you. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm financially secure right now, 
But as someone who's on their own, yes, there is financial security. I know that if I were to bring other people into my life, I would have to change the way I do things or change the way I handle money to be able to ensure that I am secure into the future. But yeah, it's like just being adaptable to changing circumstances as well, I think is really important. And then understanding how your lived experience can help shape how you adapt as well. So if it's important to you to be financially secure, you may become anxious of how much money you're spending in some areas. That may affect your behavior in some way. So you got to come up with ways that you might want to try and address that. You mentioned something like along the lines of the, a lot of the things that happen in our past shape us, but you also have the power to like not let it shape you if it's just not useful. Is there anything that you've like, nah, that's not useful anymore and you've worked on it? Oh, yeah. Oh, so many things. <laughs> when you're young and you come out of high school, go into uni, come out of university, you are in some ways ready for the professional world. But in a lot of ways, you're untested and untried. And there's a lot of social norms in the professional world that you have to adapt and get used to. I think one example is because I have quite a dark sense of humor. That may not necessarily translate well into the workplace. <laughs> so it's trying to bring out your authentic self, but still try and make people laugh and have jokes. I like to go down the route of self-deprecating. I, I feel like that that gets a lot more laughs, <laughs> than, than anything else. But yeah, like that, for example, just how to even engage with someone and humor in the workplace. That's one particular example. I had to kind of learn or kind of unlearn and then relearn. Now, this is going to be such a tangent. Now I'm interested. Do you have any dark jokes off the top of your head that you can share? <laughs> <laughs> oh, geez, you put me on the spot. No, I, I don't. I don't. <laughs> I'll have to think of one. I'll think of one. I'll think of one and get back to you. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Thank you. <laughs> Well, I suppose like the other thing about his upbringing, in particular, how he was able to transition into more leadership style role is, and this is something he emphasized multiple times, is people along the way saw something in him that he didn't see himself. It like further reinforced the point for me is that I want to be that kind of person in someone else's life because I want to pay it forward for the people that have done it for me. I remember how special I felt to know that someone will take time out of their day to say something to me or to compliment me or to help me with something, I think is an incredible privilege and it's something that you don't want to take for granted. I agree. When someone when someone sees your greatness before you do, it's a very special thing. I remember my old boss at the old clinic, she was really good at that. When I was leaving, she said like, you know, I knew those these four walls weren't going to contain you. <laughs> you have too many interests, not in a bad way. You have too many interests, too many passions. Like this was never going to be enough for you. And she saw that well before I did. And, you know, she saw that I was interested in other stuff and leadership and growth. And there might be like a board opportunity that comes on our primary health network. And she'd be like, you should, you should try out for this. It really makes a difference. Other than that board opportunity, has there ever been an instance where she pushed you outside of your comfort zone? The board one, I was actually, although I didn't end up applying. (laughs) (laughs) 
outside my comfort zone. Yes and no, like nothing in particular, but she's always challenging me to think, like expanding what's possible. Not directly as such, you know, I was telling her about all the stuff I was doing in the happiness space, speaking and coaching and all that sort of stuff. And she'll just gently talk about TED Talks, for example, as if I will give one one day, which I hopefully will, you know, or if I was going to speak at a company, she'll be, she'll say off the cuff, you know, corporates will pay like $500 an hour for something like that. Just things that would really challenge what I think is possible. So then that becomes my norm. It's not so much she actively put me out of my comfort zone, but she was always like expanding my mind on to what's possible. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that because that's exactly what Cohen said as well. He mentioned that when you trust someone or when you develop that rapport with someone, especially if they see something in you, they'll nudge you towards that. So did you know that she was nudging you at the time? She continues to nudge me. I still, she's one of my She's, I don't know. I, I'm going to ask her why she does this because um, I just assume this, this is just her nature. And what that does is like it allows me to know her better, like her, and trust her. So when she does give me feedback that's constructive, I'm much more like all ears. You know, I asked her once. I was just talking about the people in the clinic. She's like, yeah, everyone's got different personalities and I try to spend time with each of them to get a good feel and read of them. And then I was like, well, what's your read on me? <laughs> and she said, do you really want to know? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, she gave like some really, really like raw, honest feedback, which actually took me by surprise. That's great. Yeah, it's great. Exactly. Yeah, that's, it's such great. A, that's such a gift. It's not what just like, you're, you're doing really well, keep up the great work. It was like, this is who I think you are. It <laughs> 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 yeah. was yeah. good. It's very good. What are some directions that you... Uh... Wait, hang on. Before you, before, you ask, before you ask this question, I want to ask, why did you not put in for that director role? Part of me, I looked into the process at a mechanical level, they, you needed like a lot of, like all the requisites I didn't have, like all these different requirements that you oh, needed man. to have. You just, you, you just supply and then you learn how to do it when you get the job, right? <laughs> that's, that's how everyone does it, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's at a mechanical level. At the second level, more importantly, I didn't want to. Like it was just, just wasn't something I wanted to do. I think over the years, something I realized is that there is no shortage of opportunities. Yeah. And as you, as you grow, the opportunities become more and more and being comfortable with saying no. Yeah, that's so important. It's something I'm working on. So since then, there was another board opportunity that came and I, that one was sick. Like I would have, I still want to do that. But even that, I said no, because at the moment, my main focus is writing my book. <clears throat> And that takes a lot of time. So just be patient, but there's no shortage of opportunities. One day I'll be on some board, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like to think if you don't want the role or if you're not keen on the role, the worst thing that could happen is that you get the role. Because <laughs> if you already knew going in that you didn't want it, but you just applied anyway because it was a good opportunity or for me personally, like definitely the pay is not necessarily the determining factor of whether I want to do something, which is again, something that Colin mentioned as well. You know, he's, he's in such a good spot right now. Like he can, 
he can choose where he wants to go. He's kind of solved for his greatness in a little bit, in a, in a way as well. So yeah, he's got a lot of doors open. And yeah, it's like sourcing that feedback from the people around you. It'll help you uncover what, which doors are open to you and which opportunities are available for you. But yeah, he, sp- he spoke about so many things, like the role of empathy in leadership as well. And that was a question that I wanted to ask you, Gian, because I don't think I've asked you this before, but what is your definition of empathy? My definition of empathy is when you understand and take time to understand the story that the person you're empathizing with is, has created about what has happened. So really understanding that inner world. And the classic definition is like putting yourself in someone else's shoes. I would take that a step further and say putting yourself with permission in someone else's mind and understanding the story that they're making about whatever's happening or whatever's happened. Yeah, okay. It's definitely one that I'm the most familiar with, like putting yourself in someone else's shoes. It's one thing to understand what happens in our life, but what's more important is what we or the person makes it mean because what happens is neutral because otherwise you run into the trap of you make your own meaning and you think that's empathizing, but that's not really empathizing. You're just, you're just making judgments and interpretations based on your own filters and lenses. Yeah. Yeah. Your life experience, your environment. Yeah. Everything. You know, I recently read this article, which I think is a really interesting way to look at empathy. It's a scenario where you're sitting in a room at a table and someone runs into the kitchen and pours themselves a glass of water and drinks it so quickly that it spills all over their shirt and on the countertop. And you look at them, this person that's drinking this water feverishly, you look at them and say, whoa, slow down. You know, you're going to, you're going to, yeah, you just tell them to slow down. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think that needs any more. (laughs) (laughs) You just say, whoa, slow down. You're looking at them from your perspective. But empathy is where you feel their thirst and you say, geez, the water's nice, isn't it? So that's the difference. It's like when you say slow down, that is sympathy. I'm not sure if I agree. I think the initial piece of like, oh, slow down. I'm not sure that's empathy or sympathy. That's just um, judgment, I guess. And if you feel their thirst... I think that's sympathy. But if you understand why they're thirsty, that's empathy. So in as a doctor, we're taught to try not to be sympathetic as much because if you start feeling everyone's suffering, it's going to be a rough career for you. But if you understand their suffering, you walk alongside them, you can still help. You know, you, you understand, you try to understand what they're going through and you can try to help, but you don't necessarily feel it or you don't necessarily want to feel it. Sometimes you do if we're human. You don't necessarily want to feel it because that may not be helpful. What do you think? I think you're adding on bits, but it sounds like you're agreeing. You're saying yes and? <laughs> no. Nah, I'm saying no, no because. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> There's a subtle difference. Like you don't want to feel their thirst. You don't want to? No, because that's their thirst. What's a, what's my? It's not really my business to feel what they're feeling. It's more understanding why they're thirsty. Then there's no judgment there. You're, you're generally just trying to understand. And then if you can help, you can help. If you're not, that's fine as well. 
Well, there's no judgment there if you're feeling, if you're just feeling someone else's feeling. The circumstances, thoughts, feelings, actions, behaviors, results. Like if, if you look at it through that concept, if you feel their thirst, you can still understand what they're thinking. That's still part of the process, I think. I don't think it's either or. I think if you, if you understand someone's thoughts, you can still feel what they're feeling. If you feel what another person is feeling, you can then still rationalize and understand their thoughts. I absolutely think it's helpful because it reserves judgment because you're saying, wow, I actually don't know what I might do in this situation. Like, although I'm looking at something which I think is objectively, but there's a whole host of filters that I'm applying over the top of what's happening, actually, I have to reserve judgment because of my perceived bias on what's actually happening here. Is that this person running into a room? I don't have any other piece of information on why they ran into this room and ran straight for the tap and started drinking. I don't have any other piece of information other than I've just assumed that they're thirsty. So I don't disagree. You absolutely need more pieces of information to get the whole understanding. The f- I don't know. He could have just run someone over and run into the room. That was a duck. Joke, by the way. <laughs> well done. Yeah. Well done. <laughs> it was poorly, poorly executed, right? Um, <laughs> no, it was good timing. I like that one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so they could have done anything and then ran into the room, be thirsty. But it's you using that information. And what was useful for me was to empathize with this person and feel their thirst. Yeah. But... <laughs> uh, I, I, I mean, I think vocabulary matters here. So thirst is not so much a feeling. It's a, well, it's a physiological experience or physiological feeling, I think. Feelings are slightly different. I think we're saying the same thing, mostly the same thing, but we're using the vocabulary differently. So if we come back to the initial question, which is how do you empathize with someone who's sculling water. Hmm. They could be feeling a range of things. Maybe they're anxious. Maybe they're, maybe they're happy. Who knows? Whatever they're feeling. Maybe they're excited. I don't need to feel any of those things to empathize with them. If I feel what they're feeling, whether it's anxiety or scared or happy, firstly, the way I see it, that's sympathy. And secondly, I don't see any use in that. For me, if, if we are going to get into this world, maybe it's none of our business. Maybe it's just, you just notice and you just get on with your life. But if we are trying to empathize with them, it would be about asking questions to figure out what they're thinking. That's the empathy for me, I think. And yes, that thinking will influence different feelings for them, but it doesn't have to make me feel what they're feeling for me to understand their world. Yeah, but the scenario is of someone running into a room and sculling the water. That's the scenario. I think I'm, I'm just trying to demonstrate that you can be empathetic. And it's just a model and a scenario. There's so many nuances to this. If, if you're trying to summarize empathy in just one scenario, like you're, you're going to have a tough time. There's one scenario where you are empathetic and there's another scenario where you're sympathetic. And it's just like conceptualizing the differences between the two. But it's interesting to hear your thoughts around what, what is helpful for you and what, what isn't. So you're saying that it's not helpful for you to feel their thirst. It's more helpful that you ask follow-up questions. If I was trying to empathize with them, yes. It's not helpful for me to feel their thirst. 
it's helpful for me to understand why they're thirsty. Well, it's helpful for me to go take a step back. Maybe they're not thirsty. It's helpful for me to understand why they're drinking a lot of water. Mm. Period. Yeah, I don't disagree. Yeah, I think it is the curiosity and the follow-up is incredibly important. And, you know, I think that in itself is still empathetic. Yeah, absolutely. An additional layer to this. So it's, I think it's good, it's empathetic to figure out why they're drinking and also how they're feeling as a result. It's just not important for me, I don't think, or useful for me to necessarily feel that same thing. Mm. So just understanding the inner world. Yeah. For me, I would find that useful. Why is that? I'm just curious, I think. The only useful way to action that curiosity is through a question. Let's keep the, the reflections going. And what I was really impressed with or what a big takeaway for me from that episode was Cohen's differentiation between delegation and allocation. <laughs> this is a great segue. It has an excellent segue, yeah. Yes. I haven't heard of that. Have you heard of that before? I actually haven't. I didn't realize there was a there was a difference and I didn't realize that I needed to know that. <laughs> but now that I know that, I can't think of a time where I haven't even like haphazardly I haven't conceptualized it, you know? Like for example, being a leader, I delegate work all the time, but I didn't realize that I was actually delegating it. I wasn't allocating it. I was holding people accountable to that work. And I made it clear that I that that was what was happening. It's really, it's interesting that you're doing these things without even realizing that you're doing them. But now that you know about them, you can be a lot more structured and a bit more direct. Yeah, my understanding is that delegation is you, you give someone a task to do and you give them the personal responsibility to complete it or give them some ownership over it. Yeah. When you're delegating something, you're not only just handing over what needs to be done, you're also handing over the responsibility for that. Yeah. And then with allocation, you're just, you're just handing over what needs to be done. You're still responsible for what needs to happen. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like at the end of the day, the responsibility will eventually come back to the leader anyway, right? Um, I was talking to one of my cousins about this. You're saying as a leader, if you if you have someone in your team and they make a mistake the first time around, that's their problem. That's their fault, you know, in quotation marks. If they make that mistake again, that's on you. <laughs> oh, that's good. <laughs> no, it's interesting. It's interesting. It's, uh, it's particularly interesting for me because I think I, I'm not in the corporate space. So I'm used to working in as a GP either by myself or in like small teams. So it's cool to like think at the highest scales, like what, what it could look like. Because I would imagine you need both. Some people on your team may not actually want to have delegation. They might actually just want to know exactly what to do and just be sort of walk through it. Not everyone's wired that way to... They may not necessarily become leaders as such, but maybe they don't want to either. So I think it's preferences as well, right? Yeah, exactly right. Preferences. And you, you have to understand the preferences of your team so that you know where their strengths are, where their opportunities for growth are, then you can build a team around that. Yeah. yeah. Like exactly like Colin was mentioning, like he, he looks for people who complement his opportunities for growth, you know? So yeah, he doesn't want to bring people into the team that has the same skill sets as he does, not necessarily. 
I want to flag that actually. So that is seems like such a logical thing to do. You know, have a diverse team where people complement your weaknesses, you know, their strengths complement your weaknesses sort of thing. In practice, I would imagine you have to be really humble to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, that is a great segue into how Cohen would potentially fix the team. You know, when we posted him that scenario, he comes into an organization and he finds a team incredibly siloed, very poor working relationship between the teams. And he's going to try and put together a strategy to fix it. His first thought was to drink a lot of tea, which I thought was awesome. <laughs> that may have been one of the best yeah. answers I've yeah. <laughs> on this podcast so far. I was not expecting yeah. that. I, what did he say? I would walk around and drink a lot of tea. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it, it just—it's it, such a humbling thing. But I think what he's really saying is he's learning more about the organization and not jumping to conclusions about what he thinks needs to be done. So he's learning the context and what's actually happening within the organization. And then he he goes through that process of gathering information to develop a strategy around how to move forward. And that, what was really interesting was when he said that part of that strategy might form that he may need to upskill himself and how he can lead people with different sets of preferences. (laughs) But to even conceptualize it that way, I really look up to that. I really identify with how humble that is. It's actually, it sounds in the long term easier that way. Because otherwise, if you're the, the main port of call for everything, you just get burnt out. Like it's just, you have to make every big decision when at the back of your mind, you maybe sometimes you don't know what you're doing. Yeah. And if you're not humble enough to be like, actually, you know, Buddha is actually probably knows more about this. I'm just going to ask him. <laughs> mm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and the final thing that Cohen mentioned that I found really interesting was the system acronym. Do you remember what it was? Mm. Save yourself time, energy, and money. Yeah. That was great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. The distinction that he made was it, it wasn't a system in, in like a computer system. It was the system as a, as a whole. And working on the system, it will lead to better outcomes. Oh, wow. I was interpreting that more from a, because we were, I think we were talking about burnout as well. So just the power of systems to save ourselves energy, time, and money, all the things that are time, you know, we're time poor, we're energy poor, and maybe money poor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <Burnt out. laughs> money poor. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, or just poor. Oh, just poor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the last thing that I wanted to talk to you about was that epic model that Cohen shared with us, that followership model. Mm. What were your thoughts around it? Yeah, so let's let's go through that model so everyone's up to date. So the two axes are You've got independent critical thinker. And then right at the bottom of the vertical axis, you've got the dependent uncritical thinker. And then the horizontal axis, all the way on the left, you've got passive. And then all the way on the right, you've got active. So it makes a quadrant. So if you're in the top right of that quadrant, so you're you're independent critical thinker, and you're also active in what you do, then you're a star person. And then 
if you're still active in what you're doing, but you're a dependent, uncritical thinker, then you're a yes person. So if you're dependent on information coming to you or if you're dependent on others to provide you with information or if if you're not actively going out and seeking that information yourself, but you still action what you're provided, then there's that yes mentality. And then on the bottom left is the, the passive and the dependent uncritical thinker. That's where the sheep are, as Cohen puts it. As the motto puts it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> or passive, as I like to say. Yeah. And then on the top left, you've got your independent critical thinker and passive then you're alienated. So you're more likely to bring up problems and not solutions. You're the one that's that's poking holes in everything that is to be done, but you're not offering solutions or you're not taking responsibility for the solutions. What was really interesting was to learn that we at any point in time could fall into those areas at any point in time. It's not, it's not like we live in one area all the time. We use the model to conceptualize ourselves, but also to conceptualize the leaders that we would want in our professional lives and potentially in our personal lives as well. Is there any any part of your life you think you seem like visibly frightened about being a sheep? (laughs) Yeah, man, I'm not a sheep. I'm I'm a wolf. (laughs) No. (laughs) No, that's exactly what a sheep would say. (laughs) (laughs) wolves don't need to tell other people they're wolves right (laughs) everyone just knows they're a wolf (laughs) nah nah, look anyway um, I don't know why first of all I was trying to add some levity to the conversation so I think I was trying to crack a joke but there is an aspect of to myself where I'd like to think I'm not passive and dependent critical thinker but a lot of the time Sometimes when I'm learning something and I'm not interested in what I'm learning, I'm kind of a sheep because <laughs> I'm dependent on information coming to me and being fed to me, but I'm still kind of passive about it because I'm not, it doesn't particularly excite me if I'm learning something new and if I have to learn it. Mm. Something I don't like about this model is it labels the person, not their behavior. So like to call, no one wants to necessarily be called a sheep. Well, no one necessarily wants to be called a yes person or alienated. You know, there's only really mm. one quadrant you want to be in when you look at this quadrant. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, isn't that what it's trying to do? It's trying to push you to up towards there, right? It's trying to push you to be an independent critical thinker and active. Yeah, I mean, firstly, I think there's a subtle difference between behaving like a staff follower, which is the holy grail of this model, versus becoming one. Like sort of changing who you are versus changing what you do. But also, I think there are perhaps certain aspects of your life where it's okay to be in some of these other quadrants. Because there's an opportunity cost for everything. Like if you're an independent critical thinker and you're active in every area of your life, I wonder if there's if that's even possible. Like whether you'd have to have some areas where you're like, Ah, whatever. I don't really care what I think about this and I'll just let this go. Yeah, I'm just challenging whether it's possible to be a star in every aspect of your life through this model. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to channel my 
in a Mali and in a Dr. Mali and Cohen and just ask you, what would that look like if you did? Firstly, I, um, what I'm arguing is I don't think it is always the aspiration is what I'm arguing. Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm Yeah, not, is, it, is it important to you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How important is it to you to be a star person in every aspect of your life? That's important, just not through the lens of this model. <laughs> I just don't agree with this model. <laughs> yeah. I just don't agree with Cohen's favorite model. That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> I'm, well, I guess I'm being an independent critical thinker. Here. Hey, man. Yeah. Hey, man, don't say that. We, we need to get him on next time to explain the model. Yeah, this is what he wanted. I'm, I'm yeah. being independent. <laughs> And questioning the model itself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You're independently, critically thinking about the model. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. All right. Well, hey, look, that's great intention to um, get him back on to explain it to him and, and A, your disagreements. Yeah. Next time, let's get him on and let's just disagree with him for an hour. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think that'll be a very short conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else you want to add? Yeah. Nah. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Solve for Greatness podcast with your hosts, Dr. G and Budima. Don't forget to like, comment, subscribe, and share. See you soon. <laughs> <laughs>